Hello and welcome to AP World History and Overview. I am Sydney and this is Period 4. Alright, so let's begin with Key Concept 4.1. The interconnection of the Eastern and Western Hemispheres, made possible by transoceanic voyaging, transformed trade and religion and had significant economic, cultural, social, and demographic impact on the world. I. Existing regional patterns of trade intensified in the context of the new global circulation of goods. A. The intensification of trade brought prosperity and economic disruption to the merchants and governments in the trading region of the Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean, the Sahara, and overland Eurasia. Um, so the first part of this key concept is really just addressing what we talked about in period, both period two and period three with the emergence of our four major trade routes. Um, everything that's being traded on there, um, the prosperity, um, merchants traveling along these routes. Um, for example, in the Indian Ocean, Southeast Asia was very connected. They used seasonal monsoon winds. Um, all forms of different cultures and ships met in harbors for commerce, so a lot of cross-cultural interactions. Um, Muslim cities provided a lot of the demand, so merchants were very active, and this trade route helped spread religion um, a little bit, um, especially with the use of junks now, too. Um, economic prosperity was much higher, increased a lot with those new technologies. Um, so that's just really one example of the Indian Ocean. Again, all of these trade routes are being used extensively in these, this period. Um, I want to say especially Indian Ocean because it starts to become monopolized um, by some Europeans, which we're going to talk about. But um, all of these trade routes still exist during this time and our goods are circulating on them. Also, they began to explore uh, some other parts of the world, um, again, especially Europeans, they began to explore more on the Pacific as well as the Atlantic. Okay, so those trade routes are kind of review. Um, now on to 4.1.2. European technological developments in cartography and navigation built on previous knowledge developed in the classical, Islamic, and Asian worlds. A, the developments included the production of new tools, innovations in ship designs, and an improved understanding of the global wind and currents patterns, all of which made transoceanic travel and trade possible. So we're going to talk about a couple um, new technologies or innovations here. And the first one I want to talk about is the caravel. So these were European ships that were much smaller than the Chinese junks. Um, however, their size permitted them to enter shallow coastal waters and explore up rivers. Um, these ships could also withstand strong ocean storms. Um, they were equipped with triangle latine sails that could take wind on each side, which led to the ship's maneuverability. And they also could have a square Atlantic sails for speed. So... And they also had small cannons that made them good fighting ships. So these were used by Spanish and Portuguese originally, but then by a lot of Europeans. And its sleek design um, helped it serve a lot of purposes for the Europeans and really helped them in their conquering, um, their warfare, 
and just their plain exploration during this time. Um, something else that rose uh, in period four was the astrolabe, which is an Arab-Greek invention that enabled mariners to determine their location at sea by measuring the position of the sun or the stars in the night sky. So again, this was used by Europeans to explore and conquer, and before, um, sailors could not do this, but with the um, with the innovation of the astrolabe, they could now tell exactly where they were based on um, the sun or the stars. So that made transoceanic travel and trade possible. Um, something else we have... Uh, this isn't necessarily something that was used um, in the actual exploration, but kind of improved understandings of it. And this is the Sagres, or the Sagers. Um, Henry the Navigator, he founded these as a center of research to study navigation. Um, this built on the efforts of Italian merchants and 14th century Jewish cartographers. And basically what they did is they collected geographical information from sailors and travelers and sponsored expeditions and things like that. Basically um, collected knowledge on the art of sailing so um, the Europeans could know a lot of things about the sea or the places that they were going to before they left home. So this was done by formed by Prince Henry the Navigator, who we're going to talk about a lot more. Um, finally, the junk. This was used by the Chinese. Um, and this, uh, we've talked about this a little bit, but I'm just going to reiterate it here as a development because it was used in Ming expeditions. So, again, used by, used in period three, but also being used now. Um, it was 300 feet long by 150 feet wide. Um, it has nine masts, 12 sails, many decks, 3,000 a ton capacity. Um, and that was six times the size of Christopher Columbus's entire fleet. So to put it in perspective of how big it was and how much it weighed. Um, they had cannons, they had Chinese crossbows, all those kinds of things. So that is what the Chinese used in their ship designs. New technologies also included things um, like the hourglass to keep time, the compass to know what direction you were going, and the log line um, to know what speed you were going. And this actually had knots uh, tied into it. And by counting the knots, you could tell how fast you were going. That's where the term comes from. Um, also, a little side note. We're getting into the European explorations. Kind of, We just did with the technologies they used with the exception of the junk, and now we're going to talk about them a lot. Um, but some of the reasons for exploration, as a little side note, were a want for spices, the fall of the Mongols, they were now able to sort of rise up, um, a want for Islamic goods and technologies, um, the scientific revolution, enlightenment that occurred in Europe, as well as the church going out and getting more members of the church kind of as missionaries, per se. All right, now 4.1.3. Remarkable new transoceanic maritime reconnaissance occurred in this period. A. 
Portuguese development of maritime technology and navigational skills led to increased travel and trade with West Africa and resulted in the construction of a global trading post empire. Um, so a little bit about the Portuguese first. Um, like I mentioned him before, but Prince Henry the Navigator, he creates a bunch of sailing schools in Portugal and begins to teach the astrolobe. Um, they explore and become wealthy through gold on the west or the gold coast of Africa. Um, Vasco da Gama, he's a Portuguese dude that sails around the tip of Africa to finally reach Indian Ocean trade. So before him, a lot of people, you know, sailed down there but couldn't get very far a lot of times because uh, sailors during this time didn't know what to expect and were scared of things like sea monsters. <laughs> Um, so anyways, they didn't want to go any farther. So Vasco da Gama is the first one to sail all the way around the tip of Africa and into the Indian Ocean where he found a more than prosperous trade. Um, they developed a monopoly over the Indian Ocean trade, which made them even more wealthy. So for a period of time, they controlled all of them. They controlled Manila, Malacca, Elmina, Luanda, and Mozambique. Um, they also explored and controlled parts of Brazil. So like for the Portuguese in Africa, um, they had a large interest in the Gold Coast because um, it was cheaper for them to trade the Africans. Um, they established kind of a monopoly on that trade though because um, they found a lot of goods that they liked on the Trans-Saharan trade as well as uh, not them per se, but a lot of Europeans found that they liked the slave trade and really um, started trading things for slaves from Africa. Um, and you know, in return, uh, the Africans got Europeans, uh, European weapons to fight with, and things like that. But really, while the Portuguese traded a lot in Africa, um, got a lot of gold from that, got really wealthy. Um, their real goal was to get to that Indian Ocean trade, and once they got there, um, somewhat left Africa behind. So originally in the Indian Ocean, Vasco da Gama landed in Malabar and put forth his plans to make the Indian Ocean a Portuguese sea. Um, he had superior ships and weapons, uh, therefore he bombarded the Swahili coast and other things, and basically got a bunch of trading cities. So took over Gujarat, Calicut, Marabar, the Hormuz. Um, eventually all of those things was dominated. So was what was once a free trade was now dominated by the Portuguese who, you know, monopolized it. And now merchants had to pay taxes and things to the Portuguese. Everything went through Portuguese hands, things like that. Portuguese got really, really wealthy by just facilitating the movement of goods on the Indian Ocean trade. So they really controlled all of this at this point. Um, eventually, this is taken by some other European countries, but really from this point forward, the Indian Ocean has a lot of Europeans sailing into it and trying to control it. And of course, he did this because... At this time, the Indian Ocean trade had some of the best goods that there were to offer. So um, they got wealthy, and they also 
about all of the benefits of all of the goods, all the trading that occurred in these sea lanes. And something to keep in mind for the Portuguese that really their monopolization of the Indian Ocean trade, I guess, is their claim to fame when it comes to or, uh, exploration, because after that they were a, a little bit kicked out after that. You know, they weren't a huge superpower at the end of this period or in next period. And they did not hold a lot of territory um, in the Americas like the British and the Spanish did. Um, really, they controlled Brazil, and that was all. That's why Brazil are the only Latin American country to speak Portuguese. Everyone else speaks Spanish. Fun fact. So actually, after looking through all the other key concepts, um, I've decided to keep the exploration and colonization um, together a little bit more. Um, I think this is probably the best place to put it for my overall understanding, your under, overall understanding. So when I'm talking, you know, when I talk about different countries, when I talk about Spanish exploration, I'm going to talk about like the colonies and some of the things that they established as well at that time. So let me just continue on with Portugal for just another minute. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, they controlled Brazil after the Treaty of Tordesai with Spain, which is where the Pope cut the land of South America. I mean, maybe presumably of what he thought down the middle, but obviously Brazil is not just down the middle of South America. There was a lot more than that that the Spanish got. Um, they acquired slaves from the west coast of Africa and brought those slaves to work in eastern South American colonies. So they too were responsible for some of the slavery. Um, they forcibly ruled over the natives and the slaves in Brazil and gold from their colonies and visiting the West Coast made Portugal wealthy. So there's a variety of things that made Portugal wealthy. Okay, so now for B, Spanish sponsorship of the first Colombian and subsequent voyages across the Atlantic and Pacific dramatically increased European interest in transoceanic travel and trade. So the Portuguese were the first to do it, and the Spanish closely followed, which got some of the other countries, like the Dutch the French, and the British more involved. So let's begin with Christopher Columbus. He was a Genoese mariner. Um, he took four voyages between 1942 and 1504 to establish the New World across the Atlantic. Um, he found natives there, but he refused to accept that he found unknown territory and insisted he found, had found a shorter way to the Indian Ocean. Um, however, he was very bad at math and... Um, greatly underestimated the distance of where the Indian Ocean trade actually would be. Um, he thought they were 2,400 nautical miles away, and they were actually five times that far. Um, when he found this, um, you know, because he had told uh, the king and queen of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabella, that he was going to India, but Obviously, that did not occur, and he, but, you know, he begged for more funding from them, and he thought that he had probably found something pretty special. Um, however, he did still die thinking that um, the Native Americans that inhabited the Americas were Indians, that's sort of where they got their name from, and that, that he had landed on India, which he really had not. In the Americas, the Spanish conquered both the Incas and the Aztecs um, in order to control West, North, 
and South America, so they controlled a large chunk of land, um, which they eventually colonized, and became rich on these silver deposits that they found there. So Portugal became rich on gold, while the Spanish became rich on silver they found in the Americas. Um, finally, they, the Spanish made it to the Indian Ocean um, because of the voyage by Ferdinand Magellan. Um, he took Manila from the Portuguese, and that's when the Spanish influence on the Indian Ocean trade began. But the Spanish influences in the Americas were much, much larger than the influence of the Portuguese in South and Central America. Um, after finding the New World, the Spanish split it between them and Portugal with the Treaty of Tordesillas, um, which was negotiated by the Pope in 1494. Um, basically, he drew an imaginary line down the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. Um, because of the ignorance of the actual size and wasn't sure which side was going to get more, um, more of the spices and goods were on the Spanish side. But also, it was um, there was a lot of spices also in the Portuguese territory. So that worked out actually okay for them. So in the Spanish colonies, um, early settlers wanted to create their colonies based on their homeland, institutions, and customs. So they introduced things like Catholicism and the patriarchy. Um, the indigenous peoples had a powerful influence on the development and tried to protect their traditions. Um, a lot of their things did survive, but a lot of them didn't. And the Spanish took over a lot of things, such as their religion. The highest-ranking Spanish official had all the power and faced a lot of authority obstacles because both low-ranking Spanish and indigenous peoples and then later slaves did not like this. But we are going to talk about the social structure of the Spanish and Portuguese colonies a bit later. Um, so that's really what I want you to know about the Spanish right now. We're going to talk about them um, throughout this podcast. But yeah, just kind of know like the, now they, you know, what Christopher Columbus did, the charter uh, given to him by Isabella and Ferdinand, um, the conquest of the Americas, conquer both the Aztecs and the Incas. It was easier to conquer the Incas because they were in the middle of the Civil War. And they also had technologies that the Incas had never seen before, such as, like, cannons. Um, and also, they Portugal and Spain were similar in the way they ran their governments and had similar social structures. Um, they both promoted Christianity within their colonies. Okay, and to finish up this part right here, see Northern Atlantic crossings for fishing and the purpose of settlement continued and spurred European searches for multiple routes to Asia. So crossings of the Atlantic continued, um, some went to Asia, some created colonies in America, so I'm really going to address some of those other European countries now, uh, namely the Netherlands, the French, or the Netherlands, France, and Britain. Um, so the Dutch, they, uh, really took over the Indian trade from the Portuguese after they found, um, a route to Asia. The facilitation of the Indian Ocean made them wealthy, just like it had originally made the Portuguese wealthy. 
And something different is that the Dutch used joint stock companies, which we're going to talk about later. But they used both the West and East India companies, which helped pay for their trading endeavors through selling shares back in the Netherlands. Um, the Dutch also created New Netherlands in present-day New Jersey, New York. And the Dutch West Indian Company is something they had a commercial enterprise that they had, and they actually attacked Salvador, Brazil's key sugar port in the Americas. But that was kind of their only influence in the Americas. They, their biggest influence was really in the Indian Ocean trade, doing a lot of the same stuff that Portugal did, um, but took that over from them. Let's talk about the uh, French as well here. Um, the French, they crossed the Atlantic Ocean into Canada and they explored Canada and established the very important fur trade. Um, Samuel de Champlain, he was like the big French explorer, um, maybe comparable to Christopher Columbus as the Spanish explorer. And his expeditions were sponsored by Henry the Sixth, sorry Henry the Fourth, just like um, Fernand Isabel sponsored Columbus's expeditions. Um, the French also had funding through joint stock companies such as the French Mississippi Company. Um, they also created banks and paper money with this French Mississippi Company. Uh, that was done by John Law. Um, France colonized lands near the St. Lawrence River, and many Jesuits converted natives by setting up schools and setting up churches. The fur trade was very important to the French colonies as the beaver fur, fur fueled French settlements. Um, the Amerindians also helped direct this fur, fur trade, so it was sort of a little bit of a link between um, the native French and the Amerindians. Um, the French also had a colony in North America, Louisiana. It was founded in 1699, which is a little bit at, uh, sorry, uh, towards the end of this period. And this was also dependent on the fur trade. So really, you think France, you think French colonies, think fur trade. Last but not least, let's talk about the British. Um, they also had large influences in the Americas, um, mostly North America. They colonized a lot of the um, eastern coast of North America. And we'll probably, as a lot of us Americans know, we know most about the British colonization because that's technically our colonies and you know, know stuff about that later, the American Revolution, things like that. But Britain also had a hand in the Indian Ocean trade. Um, they took Elmina from the Portuguese, um, as well as exploring and colonized East North America. Um, they restricted colonists a lot when they practiced mercantilism, which is what we're going to talk about in a minute. But a little preview was basically when settlers were restricted to trade only with their motherland. So a lot of the British settlers, the British colonies, could only trade with Britain. They cannot trade with Spain or France or anything like that. And they also had joint stock companies in the British East India Company. Um, this is a Dutch competitor and also sponsored trade in the Indian Ocean. And they also had the English South Sea Company. So a lot of these Europeans kind of a trend very interested in our Indian Ocean. Um, 
But as we know, Britain colonized parts of North America, especially New England. Uh, Charles II won a control of New England, so he suspended the assemblies there, appointed governors, and kind of ran a really confrontational government there. Um, keep in mind, you know, natives lived here and the British just kind of came in and took over with their own forms of government and things like that. Um, the Virginia colony developed plantations um, and their economy was based on furs, timber, and tobacco. Um, later they got the House of Burgess, um, and that kind of ran the colonies and had a more democratic representation, but as colonists started to rise up and get mad about things, um, the Britain's government became more and more autocratic there. Um, but, uh, we're going to talk about this, but Britain also had, you know, a large role in slavery in North America, slavery in, there was a lot of slavery in, um, sugar plantations in Central America, I mean, just, just a lot of slavery, and that was a huge part of these colonies. But for now, I think we are going to move on. Well, we're going to come back, back to it in the next key concept, I think. Okay, so I know the last kind of bits of information might have been out of the scope of that uh, one key concept, but I really just wanted to address them all, their explanation, exploration and parts of their colonization there together to make... Um, uh, help you guys understand that a little bit more, but just, you know, remember the big things about each one, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the British, the French, and the Dutch. And we're going to go over some more things later, but now we're going to do key concept 4.1.4. The new global circulation of goods was facilitated by chartered European monopoly companies and the flow of silver from Spanish colonies in the Americas to purchase Asian goods for the Atlantic markets. Regional markets continue to flourish in Africa Asia by using established commercial practices and new transoceanic shipping services developed by European merchants. Wow, a mouthful. A. European merchants' role in Asian trade was characterized mostly by transporting goods from one Asian country to another market in Asia or the Indian Ocean region. Yeah, so... Basically, the Europeans were just kind of like there. They were hardly contributing their own goods to the Indian Ocean trade. They were really just facilitating the movement from of goods between one Asian country to the other. So the trade was the same. The goods were the same. It was just being monopolized. And the Europeans were like parasites, basically, in the Indian Ocean region. Because they, uh, at least to me did not do much to help the people actually in the Indian Ocean trade. They just took it for themselves. B. Commercialization and the creation of a global economy were intimately connected to a new global circulation of silvers from the Americas. Um, so yeah, there was a big circulation of silver from the Americas because that is previously untapped resources. Um, no one even knew it was there other than the, um, peoples that were already there, the Aztecs and Incas. And when the Europeans discovered this, I mean, man, did it have a large impact on the world, um, economy. You know, because again, remember, before this, it, there was, you know, trading between Afro-Eurasia and then there was the Americas. Um, this is our you know, our first truly integrated world. We're now discovering places 
you know, all over the world. And so the discovery of this really contributed to the economy. Um, and one of these places was Potsai, Potsai in Alo, Peru, or Bolivia. Um, the Spanish found this there, and um, silver, you know, eventually really dominated the Spanish colonial economy. Uh, miners extracted silver by smelting, which caused deforestation. So while um, the silver had, you know, effect, good effects on the Spanish economy, I mean, eventually, you know, inflation occurred later, but had good effects on the economy and, you know, effects on the global economy, um, it did not go well for the Americas. It caused a lot of deforestation because, and, and that's kind of a trend too, that the Europeans really didn't care what happened to the American landscape and that is why there's a lot of problems that arose then, then and there's still a lot of problems with things like deforestation today. But just keep in mind that silk, uh, circulation of silver from the Americas is a new thing. Okay, C. Mercantilist policies and practices were used by European rulers to expand and control their economies and claim overseas territories. And joint stock companies, influenced by these mercantilist principles, were used by rulers and merchants to finance exploration and compete against one another in global trade. So, mercantilism is really um, European government's policies designed to promote overseas trade between its country and its colonies and accumulate precious metals by requiring colonies to trade only with their motherland. So, yeah, the real goal was to accumulate precious metals, gold, silver, things like that, because they didn't want um, their colonies with an abundance of these precious metals trading with anyone else except for them. They monopolized the profits and accumulated capital in the form of gold and silver. They strongly, strongly discouraged trade with foreign merchants and basically only allowed them to, their colonies to trade with them. Um, this was enforced by customs authorities, the Coast Guard, all of these kinds of things. So, really, European colonies were only allowed to trade with their motherland and mercantilist policies. And the British were the ones that really did this a lot. Um, or, you know, that's kind of where we hear about it, where we learn about it, is the British had very strong mercantilist um, policies. This also made American colonies their goods. It made them cheap, like they were cheap for the British to buy, but then expensive to sell. So they were, like, w way cheaper for the motherlands to get than they would be from anywhere else. Um, capitalism was different than this um, because it was more of like a free kind of market economy. It was like an economic system of large financial institutions such as banks, stocks, exchanges, and um, commercial capitalism was really the trading system of the early modern economy where merchants and investors could conduct their own business sometimes without um, state you know, influences because like in guilds. Um, that was still all run by most of the state. People couldn't just make, you know, what they wanted and sell it for a price that they picked and keep the money and things and all that. But this began, this practice of capitalism began during this time in trading and buying and selling of goods in this time. 
This key concept also talks about the use of joint stock companies, um, which were uh, businesses often backed by a government or a charter that sold shares to individuals to raise money for its trading enterprises and to um, kind of spread the risks of exploration among many investors. So obviously it cost money to explore and this kind of spread it among lots of people just in case it failed or things like that. And also um, people made a lot of money if exploration was successful. Um, the stock exchange goes along with this where like individuals bought and sold shares, but these joint stock companies, um, the stock exchange and even some charter companies, which are a little bit different than joint stock companies, um, influenced like the financial side of exploration and a lot of people to compete against, you know, each other in global trade. Um, the difference with the charter companies is that um, it was the the rights were grant, granted exclusively by a royal charter, like a similar instrument of government for the purpose of like trade, exploration, colonization. So it was like exclusive rights um, by the charter that were granted to certain people or and or the company. Um, so it's kind of, I guess, a little bit more of like a government thing since it had to do with the charter rather than the joint stock company was purely like about the financial gains of exploration and funding it as a whole but um charter companies also helped fund these endeavors as well and um 4.1.4.d the atlantic system involved the movement of goods wealth and free and unfree laborers and the mixing of african american and european cultures and people so for this i really want to talk about um the atlantic circuit atlantic slave trade and slaves and some of the plantations in america um that kind of arose as a result of this the movement of goods slaves from africa the colonization of europeans things all like that so the Atlantic Circuit connected Europe, Africa, and the Americas. And the first leg was from Europe to Africa, and it carried European manufacturers such as metal, hardware, guns, and cotton textiles. Um, in Africa, the Europeans purchased slaves. Then the Middle Passage, or the second leg, was when they transported slaves to the Americas. Um, and this is, you know... These were terrible, cramped conditions. There was lots of disease, lots of brutality by the Europeans against the Africans. I mean, just a terrible trip over. I mean, not a lot of people survived. Not a lot of people were in for good things when they got there either. So the Middle Passage was just just, just horrible for the, the African people. And then in the third leg was the plantation goods that were produced by the colonies would be carried back to Europe. So let's talk a little bit about slaves in the Atlantic slave trade because um, that has to do with the Atlantic system because this is part of the movement of unfree laborers. Um, the slaves were taken from Africa and sometimes sold as prisoners of war from other African nations against their will. Um, the Europeans, they justified their doings with the racism. So kind of like I mentioned in past periods, like before slavery was not like it is now. Now, you know, now... Europeans are, are basically stealing people from their homelands and bringing them to a brand new land and forcing them to work 
under horrible conditions that are terrible to them um, and all these things. And they justified this with racism. Um, slavery made large sugar production possible. And slaves were the majority of the population in on these plantations in the Americas. And they were owned by a small class of white masters. Um, slaves had no rest. They had low life expectancies. Um, inadequate um, standard of living, high mortality, high instance of disease. Um, just just a really awful thing in history, guys. I mean, I, yeah, you know, I have to understand that. Just um, what the Europeans did to these people is just, you know, relatively unacceptable. And it still goes on, you know, racist things you know, still happen today. And all because of, you know, Europeans introducing the Africans even into the Americas. Um, but, you know, the slaves really made these plantations in the Americas run because, like, we're going to talk about indentured servants and natives really were not as effective. Um, but so in the plantations in the Americas, uh, sugar production was the main crop that was used for export, so that was part of the crop that went back to Europe on the third leg. Um, plantations required slave labor, so the slave trade, the Middle Passage, increased. Slaves provided free, hard labor and treated very badly by the Europeans. And then we're going to talk about manumission and maroons in... Well, you know what? We're going to talk about it right now. Change my mind. Um, so manumission was a grant of freedom to individual slaves because masters sometimes freed their mistresses and their children. Um, some slaves also were able to purchase their freedom from their masters, and this led to the development of a free black class in the colonies especially the Spanish, um, British, Portuguese colonies. We're going to talk about that. Like when we, you'll see that, that class of free blacks when we talk about the social structure of these colonies. Um, maroons were escaped slaves that were part of a free black population. Um, there are communities of these runaways in Jakarta, Hispaniola, etc. And some of them signed a treaty in 1783 that gave them their own independence in return for stopping other runaways. Um, so, to be honest, it was kind of every man for himself here. Okay, um, now for key concept, 4.1.5. Um, this is one of my favorite things, possibly, because it's easy to understand for me, but, um, you know, really interesting. And this key concept really talks about the Columbian Exchange. So, the new connections between the Eastern and Western Hemisphere resulted in the Columbian Exchange. And just kind of like... I know I'm the one, like, taking the exam, but, like, if anyone's listening to this, um, I'm pretty sure the Columbia Exchange is probably going to be on the exam since it's, like, has a whole long key concept dedicated to it. Um, that makes it probably pretty important, so I would definitely know it. But we're going to go over it right now, so you are going to know it. All right. European colonization of the Americas led to the spread of diseases, including smallpox, measles, and influenza, that were endemic in the Eastern Hemisphere among Amerindian populations, and the unintentional transfer of disease vectors, including mosquitoes and rats. So, this is a byproduct of the Atlantic Circuit that we talked about. So, basically, like, when the Europeans were coming over to the Americas, when the Africans were coming over to the Americas, they were bringing things with them, like disease, as well as um, 
vectors such as mosquitoes and rats that could spread disease. They came over on the ship with them. Well, keep in mind that the Amerindian populations had never had any outside contact. Um, so their immune systems had not built up any memory to any of the diseases that the Europeans brought over. So these diseases like smallpox, measles, and influenza, while some of the um, Europeans had already grown resistant to this, the American Indians were not. Um, and, I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of them died because of these diseases. And these are, you know, partially the reason why the Europeans were so successful in conquering them, um, because they, they were all getting sick and dying. So yeah, that's A. B. American foods became a staple crop in various parts of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Cash crops were grown primarily on plantations with coerced labor and were exported mostly to Europe in the Middle East in this period. Um, so it gives some examples of foods and cash crops, like potatoes, maize, sugar, and tobacco. So let me, let me look right here. Okay, so bananas, potatoes, cassava was brought to Europe. And all of the foods that transferred from the Americas to the Europe, one, diversified their food sources, and two, led to population increase and sustainability, because all of these foods were very nutrient-dense, um, meaning that they held a lot more calories in them than that some of the foods that they had been eating before, especially cassava, things like that, um, kept the Europeans full for longer and allowed them to work longer. So that had a huge impact because um, it, it revolutionized, you know, what they um, could sustain themselves on and revolutionized the agricultural practices there. Um, so yeah, that's really what transferred to Europe from the Americas. C, African Eurasian fruit trees, grains, sugar, and domesticated animals were brought by Europeans to the Americas, while other foods were brought by African slaves. Um, examples of domesticated animals were horses, pigs, and cattle, foods by African slaves, okra, and rice. Um, so again, horses, pigs, all those things transferred from Europe to the Americas. Um, livestock, they provided hide and meat in the New World, but they also destroyed the lands and the grasses. They were eating everything that had been grown there, and um, as you know, constantly doing that, so it basically destroyed those lands. Um, this led to erosion and things like that. Like, you could say that cattle was a positive for food, but also a negative because of landscape. Um, horses were definitely a major positive for moving around, fighting, um, trading, just transportation in general. Really, that was a big impact from the Atlantic Circuit. Remember the Columbian Exchange is like a byproduct of the Atlantic Circuit. So all these, some of this is um, unintentional trading, some of it is, you know, is, but this is, I would say, a byproduct from that, that kind of triangular route between Africa, Europe, and the Americas. So D, populations in Afro-Eurasia benefited nutritionally from the increased diversity of American food crops. Um, we talked about that just now, um, but yeah, nutrient-dense foods, potatoes, cost of a corn, um, helped Europeans experience a population growth and 
help them keep it stable. E, European colonization and the introduction of European agriculture and settlements practices in the Americas often affected the physical environment through deforestation and soil depletion. So I already talked about some of the animals, but, you know, the Europeans use like slash and burn tactics to build, uh, to plant their food and, you know, plant, you know, they, I talked about the three field system because space in Europe and Britain, um, it was very limited. So they had to, you know, space out their agricultural production. There's a surplus of land in the Americas and the Europeans did not care. They just, they just you know, grew it everywhere and didn't care if it, you know, depleted the soil, you know, cut down the trees for more farmland, didn't care about the trees. So while the introduction of European agriculture may have brought some new things to the Americas, um, it had a lot of negative consequences as well. You know, so that's the Columbia Exchange really in a quick nutshell. But again, that's a really important concept to know, like the transfer of foods, livestock, diseases, all those things between Europe and the Americas. Next, we have key concept 4.1.6, which is the increase in interactions between newly connected hemispheres and intensification of connections within hemispheres expanded the spread and reform of existing religions and contributed to both religious conflicts and the creation of syncretic belief systems and practices. Um, so below that, it lists some illustrative examples of reform of existing religions and creation of syncretic belief systems and practices. Um, so first, we're going to talk a little bit about Islam and especially the importance of Sufis in Islam. So if you remember from the last podcast, um, Sufis were like mystic brotherhoods that arose in the 12th, 13th century, um, and their doctrines and rituals spread from city to city to, you know, get people either involved in Islam or to sort of spread Islam. Um, the common denominator of these Sufis was a quest for a sense of union with God through which rituals and training. So they went through a lot of training, um, performed many, many rituals. And then Islam in turn benefited from Sufis because um, this really helped it spread. You know, they grew in society and you know, at one point, pretty much most men were a part of Sufis. So it was very common for Muslims to um, belong to at least one of these brotherhoods. And like I said, you know, Islam spread a lot because of these, you know, uh, it spread uh, in Africa, sub-Saharan Africans. They gradually learn Muslim beliefs and practices from traders as well as these Sufis. And basically... The, on the Trans-Saharan trade, when it was spread there, you know, a lot of empires were able to arise because of Islam, because it promoted that point of unity. So, Islam spread pretty far and wide, and this time during, uh, sorry, into Africa, um, in the Middle East, things like that. And, it, you know, it, it had already started to spread a little in period three, actually a lot in period three, but it, it just continued to spread in this period as well. Um, also, the Swahili coast, we mentioned that, um, that is ruled by Muslims on the East African coast at this time, on the Indian Ocean trade. Um, so yeah, Islam spread through the trade routes and cities like the Swahili coast. Mosques were built there. Um, something really important to know about Islam is where it went, like new learning and intelligence centers spread with it. 
Um, so all these things were built in the places that adopted Islam, which was a big, a big part of it because you really became um, more knowledgeable if you adopted Islam, um, especially if you had to uh, make your pilgrimage. Um, Mecca was definitely a center of knowledge. But yeah, just remember that Sufis, those brotherhoods, that furthered the spread of Islam, especially in Africa. And uh, let me just add something to that really fast. We're going to talk about the Ottomans a lot later, but they were um, Sunni Muslims. And in this time, the Ottomans annexed North Africa. So a lot of North Africa became part of the Ottoman Empire because it was very strong during this time. So it they pushed into the Sahara, things like that. And a lot of the Saharan uh, places, sub-Saharan places and places on the Saharan desert um, became ruled by a Muslim, that Muslim dynasty. So because of the Ottomans, that was also a big reason that Islam spread as well. Um, Islam also arrived in Southeast Asia during this time. And this is a good example of that syncretism because it really blended with the older traditions of the places in Southeast Asia. Um, mosque designs were influenced by Hindu temples, things like that. So it was kind of a blending of those religions and, um, you know, actually wasn't like completely new, but it was, it was a different kind of Islam because of the blending. So it wasn't like it was in the Middle East because kind of had to appeal to the peoples there. But yeah, um, definitely spread along the trade routes into Southeast Asia as well. Islam sort of took over and, um, made a religion kind of like Buddhism, which we talked about earlier, into a sort of minor religion. You know, these days you don't hear about it as much. When you do hear about Islam, that is one of the major religions today. And because of all this spreading, because of all the trading, because of all the knowledge you gain by joining Islam, um, a lot of people joined it and converted. So that's why we have some of those minor religions today, like Buddhism, that were once um, had a greater impact. Okay, so next we have the intensification of the Sunni-Shia split by political rivalries between the Ottoman and Safavid empires. Um, so remember last episode when I talked about how the Sunnis were the majority, kind of the more political side of Islam, wanted a political leader, whereas the Shia really, you know, wanted to keep the leaders more religious and still believe that um, their savior will come down from heaven to this day. Um, so it's just different views of Islam, which led to a split between them. And again, one is the majority Sunni, one is the um, minority today, the Shia Muslims. However, during this time period four, the Ottomans, a very successful Muslim empire, were Sunnis. And their neighbors, the Safavids, were Shia Muslims. So as you can probably imagine, um, with those different beliefs uh, living right next to each other, you know, their borders um, were along each other, that created a lot of conflict between them, a lot of tensions between them because they believe the different things and in their history, you know, things hadn't gone down well between the Sunnis and the Shia Muslims. And that's really why uh, they did not appreciate each other. Um, so there was a lot of, you know, fighting and stuff between them. 
Um, we talked about we talked about the Ottomans a lot more, um, but yeah, just know that the, the Safavids um, were someone who gave the Ottomans a kind of hard time because they had different beliefs. Just another thing, a lot of people were Sunni Muslims during this time, just like they are now, but in the Safavid Empire, when um, their Shah Ismaili decided he wanted to be a Shia Muslim, so that's why today Iran is Shia Muslim, and it still creates a lot of tensions with other Sunni states today. Um, but yeah, because the Shah decided this, it led to lots of tensions and war with the Sunni Ottomans. And, again, leads to a lot of tensions and wars in that area today. Okay, the next thing I want to go over is the Protestant and Catholic Reformations. Um, so basically these resulted from a lot of problems in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church were a main power in Western Europe during the medieval age, and they got really powerful through that. Around the 1930s, the Pope is God's mouthpiece on earth, and he's infallible. The Pope was traditionally Italian, and the papacy was set in the Vatican. However, in the 1300s, a French Pope was elected because they didn't like how Italy was decentralized. So the papacy moved to Avignon, um, and they started appointing French bishops to positions all over Europe, which people did not like because in each country now all of the bishops were starting to be French. Um... So yeah, people really did not like this, and the French Pope only put French people in power. In the next election, an Italian mob showed up at the election and really wanted an Italian Pope, so the Cardinals elected an Italian Pope because there was a mob. Um, pope Urban VI, however, said the election happened only because of the mob, so the French held a new election and elected French Clement II. So basically there are two popes now, an Italian one in Rome, the French one in Avignon. Um, this was a huge problem because now two people are claiming that they are the only ones communicating with God. Because before, the Pope is the only person that can do that. And now two people are claiming that they can do that. Um, so this divided Catholicism in countries. There was a council held. And this council elected a new pope, Alexander V, but the other popes did not back down, so now three people um, said that they could speak to God. They held another council of Constance. Um, they kicked out all of the popes and elected a new one with all of the support, Martin X. But this kind of already led to the second great schism, the second split, because it led to a lot of distrust in the Catholic Church because three people had said that they spoke to God that actually didn't. Um, another issue that led to this was the churches were very wealthy and they sought a lot of artwork and it was very, it was extremely expensive to build St. Peter's Basilica. Um, in order to do this, they had to raise money and Pope, the Pope started to sell indulgences. So basically, it, the purgatory is where the souls not quite ready for heaven go and if you bought an indulgence, you could shave off someone else's time, like a relative, or even your time in purgatory. Like, pay money, basically, to send someone to heaven. Uh, people did not like this practice because um, 
like they thought if the Pope could had the power to do this, then why didn't he just do it? Why, why have to pay the money? Why charge people to do this if you could just send all good people to heaven? Um, some the someone who didn't really didn't like this was a French monk, Martin Luther. He saw no mention of indulgences in the Bible, Bible, and writes ninety-five reasons that the Catholic Church is bad and nails them to the church door. And these are called Martin Luther's ninety-five theses. And yeah, one of the examples he listed here: if soap could free souls, why did he have to do it for money? So he said, "This is not Christian. It's not Christianity." And he begins the Protestant Reformation. Um, this leads to major problems and devastated by religion conflict. Italy, um, Spain, and France were all Catholics, while England, Sweden, the Holy Roly, Holy Roman Empire became Protestants. Um, this led to the Thirty Years' War. Um, and many Catholic Protestant oppression. The beliefs of the Protestants included that in the Catholic Church, religious truth was in the Bible and in the priests. However, the Protestants thought that there was only one source of religious truth, and that was only the Bible. There was a difference between the Protestants and the Catholics. Um, one of the reasons that Christianity spread a lot... Um, and why the Protestant Reformation spread a lot is because the invention of the printing press. So, you, aided by the printing press, um, the Protestants printed the Bible in the vernacular or like everyday language that everyone could understand so that more people could interpret the words of the Bible for themselves. He also used the printing press to spread the 95 Theses. Um, he, especially like a good example of that is when he printed the Bible in German, um, this spread like Germany and wildfire, and all a lot of Germans became Protestants. Um, because of all these, because of this Protestant um, rise up, because of all because of all these issues, the Catholic Church led a Counter Reformation or the Catholic Reformation. It was a response, and it tried attempted to clean up the corruption, so it clarified their beliefs and reestablished the authority of the Church. Um, so there was three prongs. The first prong was the Council of Trent, which was 1545 to 1568, sorry, 63. Um, they had a reform-minded pope who recognized the problems. They confirmed their beliefs here, so that salvation comes from faith and good works. Um, Martin Luther, Martin Luther and the Protestants believed that it only came from faith. They said church is unequal to the Bible as a source of religious truth, um, which is, again, opposite of what Martin Luther thought. Um, he thought the Bible was the only source of that. Um, they also said that the Latin Bible was the only acceptable Bible, which is not true for the Protestants because they printed the Bible in different languages in the vernacular so people could understand them. Um, one of the things I did do is get rid of the indulgences. So that was a big problem that kind of started this all. Um, a lot of corruption in the Catholic Church. Um, they got rid of this in the Catholic Reformation. They were trying to become better again. So they made a strict code of conduct and things for the clergy. Um, they also, the second prong, they formed the Jesuits, which was a military branch of the Catholic Church to fight Protestants and became main missionaries to teach indigenous peoples um, and colonies Catholicism. 
Their third prong of reformation was inquisition, or to root out Protestants in Catholic territories and get people to talk um, or convert, things like that. But basically, there was this just big split in Christianity where we had one in the 1054 schism. This is the second one. And you can still see this kind of evident today where places like England, you know, have the, um, the Church of England, whereas places like Italy or, and Spain are still strongly Catholic. But this held spread Christianity because now there was a lot of different branches of Christianity, um, some and with varying beliefs, so now more and more people could get behind Christianity because it wasn't just the strict like, Catholicism that they had had before, you know, because as you know today, um, many Christians are different kinds of Christians. And again, with the printing press and spreading the Bible and the vernacular, that really helped the spreading of it because now people could understand it for themselves. Christianity also spread a lot because of exploration and colonization. Um, a lot of native people were forced to convert to Christianity. Um, and again, with the Jesuits, they became missionaries to help convert people to Christianity. So, yeah, when the Portuguese sailed, um, when the Spanish created colonies, when the British created colonies, all of those people um, converted to Christianity. So that was a big spreading of it outside of Europe. And again... The Protestant Catholic Reformation provided lots of different beliefs of Christianity and that made it so more and more people could kind of join and get their beliefs behind it. Um, so let's move on to Sikhism. So Sikhism is a great example of syncretic belief systems uh, during this time because it was influenced by both Hinduism, um, specifically the Hindu caste system. They had a very similar social structure, and the Islamic monotheism. So basically what you need to know about Sikhism is that it was a new religion that arose during this time, which, because of interactions between Hinduism and Islam, um, took things from both of those religions to create an entirely new one. So the leaders of Sikhism were called gurus, and there was, um, you know, a line of gurus throughout this religion but basically what you know of it is that it, there was like a hindu strand islamic strand and basically sikhism arose as a mixing of both of these things so these followers were called sikh um, they were a whole different religion brand new thing but had belief systems from both of the two existing religions um also there was a lot of tensions between the Sikhs and some other religions and peoples because they lived in places where religions like Islam and Hinduism dominated and a lot of people did not like that they were kind of making up their own thing, doing their own thing. So there was a lot of, I guess, harshness towards them for that. Okay, so finally we have key concept 4.1.7. As merchants' profits increased and governments collected more taxes, Funding for the visual and performing arts, even for popular audiences, increased along with expansion of literary literacy and increased focus on innovation and scientific inquiry. Um, so here we can really talk about the Renaissance um, and some of these merchants' profits being people in the bourgeoisie, this middle class people, they really financed the Renaissance because they were coming more and more wealthy because 
of the selling and buying of goods. Um, so they really started to take an interest in buying these arts and basically the Renaissance started. And the Renaissance gave rise to so many great art pieces, um, artists that you know of, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, all of those people were Renaissance artists. Um, art in the Middle Age was very flat um, and frankly not that good. However, in this period, I mean, art took off. Some of the best art forms you've seen today, um, the top of the Sistine Chapel, um, David, all of those things, I mean, these are the best examples of art, amazing art forms that we have. So this, the Renaissance really took off with art. However, there was other things such as literary works, um, you know, people started writing in the vernacular, other people could understand, um, people started scientific inquiry, um, you know, thinking that maybe divine things didn't control everything. Um, this led to the humanists, or humanities, this basically refers to the grammar, rhetoric, poetry, ethics, you know, starting to exaggerate intellectual things, as well as um, literary things for people to learn about in school and um, people to educate about. Yeah, like in secondary education, a curriculum started to be developed that was based on this kind of things. And we still have humanities today in our schools. So it became at this time an important people, an important thing for people to learn about and know about. You know, it wasn't just um, math anymore. The arts, the social studies, all of these things became very important during this time. And this is really all because merchants' profits increased. Bourgeoisie was able to finance kind of the Renaissance. And then all of these arts became more important for people to participate in and know about. Okay, guys, so that is the end of Key Concept 4.1. Um, I know that was really long, but we're going to start Key Concept 4.2 in a minute. Um, I know we're really tired. That was a lot of information. However, this podcast show must go on. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, we always have time to take a little break with Queen. Um, but now we have key concept 4.2. Although the world's productive systems continue to be heavily centered on agriculture, major changes occurred in agricultural labor the systems and locations of manufacturing, gender, and social structures, and environmental processes. 1. Beginning in the 14th century, there was a decrease in mean temperatures, often referred to as the Little Ice Age, around the world that lasted until the 19th century, contributing to changes in agricultural practices and the contraction of sediment parts in the Northern Hemisphere. So kind of the new forms of agriculture that we start to see the new settlement patterns we start to see, new peoples that arise, um, all these things could be as a result of a decrease in these temperatures during these times. I mean, we don't talk about this very much, but just kind of know that it happened. Um, this little ice age occurred beginning in the 14th century until the 19th century and could have contributed to a lot of things that we talk about. 4.2.2. Traditional peasant agriculture increased and changed, plantations expanded, and demand for labor increased. These changes both fed and responded to growing global demand for raw materials and finished 
products. A, peasant artisan labor intensified in many regions. Um, so in Europe, in Asia, places like that, um, there were still peasants, um, still artisans, and because of the rising demand of the world, um, they had to do a lot of labor. Um, it increased, and the trading of or sell, buying and selling of goods by this time um, increased. D. Slavery in Africa continued both the traditional incorporation of mainly female slaves into household and the export of slaves into the Mediterranean Indian Ocean. Um, so slavery, um, a lot of the slaves, female slaves, worked inside the household um, while others did different things, but this kind of continued that tradition in slavery where the females kind of did household chores. Um, this continued with slavery in the Americas. Um, as well as the export of slaves into the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. So slaves were not only going to the Americas during this time, um, they were going to other places as well to keep up with the labor demands. C. The growth of the plantation economy increased the demand for slaves in the Americas. So a lot of these plantation economies um, ran on sugars. This is one of the main crops. And because there was such a huge demand for this, um, they needed like three times more the enslaved Africans that they had had before. Um, so as these plantation economies grew, as the demand for tobacco and especially sugar, I mean, sugar production was huge um, in the colonies in the West Indies, the Caribbean, things like that. Um, since that demand was so huge, they needed slaves because... We're going to talk about this in, the, in D, but some of these systems like indentured servitude and the encomienda employing like Native Americans, employing people from the homelands, um, that didn't work as well as African slavery because A, the Africans um, worked very hard. They proved to be the fastest um, workers, the best workers, and they treated them horribly and didn't pay them or anything, treated them like property. So it was you know, I guess the best for the Europeans because they didn't have to treat them well. They didn't have to pay them. So, but yeah, in a nutshell, because of the growth of these economies, especially sugar, they needed more and more slaves in the Americas available to them. D. Colonial economies in the Americas depended on a range of coerced labor. Um, two of the thing, two of the coerced labors I'm going to focus on. We've already talked about slavery, but I want to talk about indentured servitude, and I want to talk about the encomienda. So indentured servitude was basically a passage to the colonies for poor Europeans. Um, these Europeans were obligated to work for three to four, four years. Um, the populations in the, in the colonies grew because of this. Um, they worked to grow tobacco often. Um, however, eventually they switched from this system in the especially the British colonies, to African slavery because um, they provided, I guess, better labor. Um, in indentured servitude, the Europeans could acquire cheap land at the end of their service. So basically, for people who wanted to come to the colonies but couldn't afford it, they could come, work for three to four years, and then get some land at the end of that. The encomienda, however, was a Spanish system, the Spanish econ 
uh, colonies until the 1450s, um, until they switched to African slavery as well. And by the end of this, African slavery is definitely the main um, labor form of coerced labor. But until the 1540s, the Spanish authorities divided Amer Indians along among settlers who forced them to provide goods or labor to them. There's a grant of authority over populations of Amer Indians in the Spanish colonies, which provided a the grant holder or the Spanish elites in the colonies with a supply of cheap labor and a periodic payment of goods. This also obliged the grant holder to Christianize the Indians. So this was another way how Christianity spread. Um, however, as epidemics, as we talked about, like 90% of Native Americans died because of diseases brought over by Europeans. So as epidemics and mistreatment led to population decline, um, there was a law to basically end this encomienda system and led to um, the use of African slaves. Um, the Spanish also imposed a Mita system in Peru's Amerindian population, so they saw how well it worked, um, how well the Incans had implemented that in society, and the Spanish adopted that when they took over and made the Amerindians continue. The Mita system, however, was only benefiting the Spanish at that time. It wasn't benefiting their society because the Amerindians had been taken over. All right. Um, 4.2.3 As social and political elites changed, they also restructured ethnic, racial, and gender hierarchies. A. Both imperial conquest and the widening global economic opportunities contributed to the formation of new political and economic elites. So the first example of economic, uh, sorry, the first example of new elites were the Manchus in China. And this really is the Qing Dynasty, or the Qing Dynasty. Um, basically, what you need to know about the Manchus in China, the Manchus are not Chinese people. They are nomadic people that came in after the fall of the Ming Dynasty and took over China and then became in charge of China. They're like the ruling class of China, the final dynasty of China. And they basically... You know, a small group at the top of Manchus began to rule over all of the Chinese people and kind of forced them to adopt some things of the Manchus, like their hairstyles and things like that. I'm actually going to take this opportunity to go over the whole of the Qing dynasty. Um, it's going to be kind of long, but I really don't know where else to talk about it, and I really do want to cover it because this dynasty as a whole is a big part of periods four and five, so we need to know about it. So... Um, yeah, the Manchus came into China and established the Qing dynasty. Um, the ruling family are called, their last name is the Qing, so that's why it's called the Qing dynasty. But the ethnicity of the ruling class, that is the Manchus. Um, the rulers continued with religious ideas to legitimize their rule, like Chinese emperors' public performance of Confucian rituals. Um, so because of this, like, this helped the Chinese people accept the Manchus and, um, like, they continued Chinese policy. So even though they weren't Chinese, they kind of adapted to make the Chinese like them, help, help the Chinese accept them. Um, we're going to talk about that in a minute. 
um, Manchu colonies towards Chinese, um, they treated different religious and extra groups differently, and they utilized their economic contributions and limited their government involvement. So, like, these different groups in China, they they made sure that they kind of extracted their economic wealth, but did not allow them to participate much in the government. Actually, wait, do I have a... Okay, I don't, never mind, just kidding. Um, we're going to continue. Um, this land empire expanded dramatically in size. Um, the Manchu adopted local ideals freely from surrounding peoples. For example, they adopted Mongol political and military structure, Korean agricultural practices, European map making and calendars, Chinese political institutions, laws, legitimacy. They adopted the mandate of heaven. Um, so things like that. So they, it was really a combination of a bunch of local ideas around them. Um, so like I said, the performance of Confucian rituals, um, this helped the foreign rulers, the Manchus, um, to make the Chinese accept them and created a public image that they were just as Chinese as they were. Um, they adapted the civil service exam, but the highest um, positions usually went to the Qing and, lo um, and the lower positions usually went to the Chinese. So it was sort of the system was sort of rigged again because um, they curved the Qing scores. This matched public image new, sorry, they matched their public image based on who they were dealing with. So they presented themselves as bodhivistas to Tibetans who practiced Buddhism. So basically they shaped themselves into what people wanted to see and this is how they were so successful in China. They took technology from the Europeans. Um, one of the things they did is they implemented the banner system. So this is a Mongol-inspired family and military unit. They took all of the tribal fighting and Manchu society, stopped it, and then mixed everyone into different banners. You fought with people from different tribes under one banner. So this united people and formed a military. Um, the elite system was basically with the Manchu on the top and all the Chinese beneath them. Um, the Chinese were in different banners because they were considered lesser soldiers. Chinese men were forced to adopt the queue, and elite Chinese men had to wear Manchu dress. So they were forced to adopt a bunch of things that the Manchu did and that the Manchu implemented on them. Manchus, they harnessed the Chinese agricultural and human resources with efficient tax policies um, to push the south and the west. There was a population explosion, a massive expansion of China. They secured the northern border with a treaty with Russia in 1680. Basically, because of the banner system, they were able to expand rapidly. Um, another thing they continued in Chinese society was the tributary system. And they also continued the Ming tradition of an export economy. So they sold tea, silk, porcelain, ivory. And all they wanted was silver money from Europe. During this time, they believed they were superior still to the Europeans. Which in some ways they were, but the Europeans are definitely uh, catching up. And only wanted money, silver from them. They didn't want to trade. Um, 
The Canton system was when China tightly regulated foreign trades and Europeans could only buy and sell things from the port of Canton. And the Chinese were not interested in buying anything from Europe. Um, this port irritated Europeans very much because they were absolutely obsessed with tea, which was produced in China. The British were obsessed with this tea and tried many times um, to trade more with them, to try to get them to open up the port of Canton. But in period four, the Chinese were successful and only rig only trading at the port of Canton and tightly regulating that foreign trade. However, this comes back to bite them in period five, but we're going to talk about that later. Basically, just know that the Manchus in China were not Chinese, and they were a new form of elite that arose during this time. Another thing was the Creoles, who arose during this time, and these were people in colonial Spanish America that were of European descent that were born in the New World. Um, wealthy Creoles controlled colonial agriculture and mining. So basically, the Creoles um, were new because before there hadn't been colonies like this, and there hadn't been people born in other places that were considered to be descent. Like, I guess someone else. These people were considered to be Europeans. They were of European descent, so they, they weren't Native American or anything like that. Even though they were born in the New World, they were still considered to be Europeans. So, and they had a lot of power in the colonies. The only people that had more power than were the Peninsulares, who were people who came, who were born in Europe, who were born in Spain, and directly came over to, like, rule these colonies. But the Crayolas were new elites because this sort of thing had never happened before. Um, so yeah, just know them because um, they're important later because they, they actually want more power. But basically, they are European people, European of European descent. Both of their parents are European, but they were born in the New World. Um, the last new elites are the European gentry. Basically, these people were well-born well-bred people of high social class. Um, these are like majority of the land-owning social class, so they controlled a lot of the land in Europe. Um, however, they did not have titles of nobility, so they were not part of that noble class. However, they were still um, very wealthy um, and contributed a lot, owned a lot of the land in Europe, just didn't have that nobility title. So these were elite people, but they were new because they were not like kings and queens. Now, key concept 4.2.3.B. The power of existing political and economic elites fluctuated as they confronted new challenges to their ability to affect the policies of the increasingly powerful monarchs and leaders. Illustrative examples of existing elites include the nobility in Europe. So like I said, um, these are older elites um, that have a lot of power in Europe. However, there were increasingly powerful people, such as the gentry in Europe, In you could even argue for the bourgeoisie, um, becoming increasingly powerful. So the nobility um, had new challenges because they were not the only people who had power anymore. 
but they are definitely still existing during this time period, existing with a lot of power. Um, also, the daimyo in Japan. So they are basically the people who retain a lot of power and autonomy in Japan. Um, what you really need to know about Japan is this is the Tokugawa shogunate during this time. Um, not very modern yet, you know, kind of, you know, they're not imperializing like Europe. They're not as prosperous as China right now. However, that does change. Um, what else can I say about them? They, rice was used as payment, um, between lords and their followers, which could be converted to cash. They had a pretty high achievement in artisanship. But again, um, the merchants held the key to modernization, and there wasn't a lot of this going on at this time. Uh, something else about the daimo, and these are like elite people in Japan. Um, this happened called the 47 Ronin, which basically these young daimo were provoked, and then they were killed because they drew their sword in a shogun presence. Um... His followers, however, the followers wanted to avenge a death, um, and they notified the shogun, but these ronin, because they weren't allowed to do this, because they weren't allowed to avenge someone's death, they were sentenced to seppuku, which was, um, like, I don't know, how do I say, like, self-sacrifice for the sake of upholding civil law, but it was sort of, like, with more dignity than being killed with other ways, because all they were doing was kind of following the direction of their their leader and wanted to avenge his death because he was wrongfully killed. But that's something that happened to the these young daimo in Japan. Um, also remember that the samurai are the, like, traditional military force in Japan during this time. Um, they're kind of important to remember. They existed in the military. And so during this time period for Japan is still very traditional. They have the daimo, they have the samurai. This all changes when they start to modernize in period five. I also want to take this opportunity to talk about Christianity in Japan. So basically Portuguese and Spanish ships brought Catholic missionaries to Japan. Um, ordinary Japanese people found new faith deep, deeply meaningful. However, elites saw it disruptive and foreign. So these daimyo in Japan did not like Christianity in Japan. Um, in 1580, there were a thousand Japanese Christians. And the daimyo gave Jesuit missionaries port city of Nagasaki. Some daimyo converts ordered subjects to convert. So if they did like Christianity, um, they ordered the people below them to also convert to Christianity. Um, and yeah, so this kind of spread throughout Japan during this time as well because it provided um, kind of a new faith, a newfound um, center point for people. Um, however, in 1914... A lot of the traditional um, Chinese elites had had enough of this and banned Christianity. Um, so a lot of missionaries left because they did not want to be persecuted and others hid underground. 
1917, there was a lot of persecutions. Um, destruction occurred of Christian communities. And really, after this, only small groups practice and secret. So really, the elites did not like Christianity and eventually got rid of it. And finally, C, some notable gender and family restructuring occurred, including demographic changes in Africa that resulted from the slave traders. Illustrative examples include the smaller size of European families. So basically during this time, um, people stopped having so many kids at once. Um, before this, families had many, many members, many, many kids. Um, but a change took place in this time period, and a lot of Europeans decided to stop having so many kids and began to have only a few kids. And that's kind of the same, the same practice that's in place today. It hasn't really changed since, you know, today people don't have ten kids. You have one or two or three. Even four seems like a lot. So um, this definitely represented a change during this time. So that is the end of Key Concept 4.2. See, I told you it'd be shorter than Key Concept 4.1. And now we're going to move on to the last Key Concept, Key Concept 4.3. Empires expanded around the world, presenting new challenges in the incorporation of diverse populations and in the effective administration of new coerced labor systems. One, rulers used a variety of methods to legitimize and consolidate their power. A. Rulers continued to use religious ideas, art, and monumental architecture to legitimize their rule. Some examples of religious ideas, European notions of divine right, um, so a lot of European rulers still claim those things, claim connections to gods. Um, the Pope, you know, definitely um, claimed a connection with God, things like that, so that religious idea continued. Um, the Safavid use of Shiism, we talked about this a little bit before, but remember the Safavids are Shia Muslim while the Ottomans are Sunni Muslims, and that created a lot of tensions between them. But this was sort of a new religious idea because before um, all of the Islamic empires had been mostly Sunni Muslim, um, Safavids were really the first big you know, gunpowder empire, which means they used gunpowder to conquer people, land-based empire. But one of, the, one of the first big empires that were actually Shia Muslim. So they used that religious idea in their empire. Um, the Mexican or Aztec practice of human sacrifice. Um, we talked about that in the last period, but that was a big idea of theirs. They thought in order to please their polytheistic gods, in order to keep them happy and things like that, um, they had to sacrifice humans. So as they expanded and took over peoples, um, a lot of the conquered peoples were subject to their human sacrifice. And all of this was before the gods, for their gods to appease to them so they would A, stay nice to the Aztecs, B, kind of give them what they want, C, wouldn't cause any kind of natural disasters or things like that. Finally, with this, we have the Chinese emperor's public performance of Confucian rituals. I touched on this a little bit, but basically the Manchus in China um, adopted these Confucian beliefs, adopted performing Confucian rituals so the Chinese there would accept them. Confucianism was very important to Chinese people. 
and, you know, important belief system for them. So the Chinese, the new Chinese emperors, the Manchus, who weren't Chinese themselves, began to perform Confucian rituals publicly in order for the better help the Chinese accept them as their new ruler. Um, illustrative examples of art and monumental architecture. Um, the Qing imperial portraits were um, a big form of art in the Qing dynasty during this time. Um, the European palaces, such as Versailles, that was also kind of how um, rulers used art, or actually, sorry, monumental architecture here to legitimize their rule. Um, the Europeans had big palaces kind of built all over, and that's where a lot of the rulers lived, things like that. But the big one I want to focus on in this example of arts and monumental architecture is the Mughal mosques, such as the Taj Mahal. Taj Mahal is something big I want to focus on. So the Mughals, we're going to talk about them a little bit more, but they were basically the rulers in, in India for a while, in South Asia, and they were not Hindu. They were Islamic. So that was a big religious change because a lot of people, you know, were historically Hindu there and then after them continued to be Hindu. But musicals were Islamic and the Taj Mahal, which is a, you know, big part of India today, um, is actually a piece of Islamic architecture. So Mughals, you know, consolidated their rule, legitimized their power by building this huge piece of monumental architecture with things like minarets that, that symbolized the Islamic faith rather than the Hindu faith. So they built all of these things in South Asia. Key concept 4.3.1.B Many states adopted practices to accommodate the different ethnic and religious diversity of their subjects or to utilize the economic, political, and military contributions of different ethnic or religious groups. Um, some examples of that include the Portuguese and Spanish creation of new racial classifications in the Americas, including mestizo, mulatto, and creole. So basically, in the Americas, this brand new social class structure arose. And I'm just going to go through each of those now because this really resulted in that differential treatment of religious and ethnic groups or in this case the differential treatment of different peoples a lot of times based on where they were born or the color of their skin. So at the very top of Spanish and Portuguese colonial societies we have the Peninsulares who are the people who were born in Europe and came over to the new world to kind of run things and show their elite status, things like that. These are, these are people that were born on the Iberian Peninsula. They are European. Creoles are descendants of Peninsulares or descendants of Europeans. So these Creoles are also elites, um, you know, just under the Peninsulares in Spanish and Portuguese um, colonial society. Um, they are born in the New World, but both of their parents are European. Both of their parents are from the Iberian Peninsula. So they, they have no American blood running through them. There, there's no 
native blood, no African, nothing like that. They're completely um, European, so they are second in the colonial structure and have quite a bit of power as well. Next we have the Mestizos, and this is where we're getting into the less powerful um, people. The Mestizos are a mixture of the Europeans, or well, the white people, and the Native Americans, the Indian um, people. Um, basically, in colonial societies, and there was a lot of mixing of peoples, as you can probably well imagine. There's, um, you know... I don't like I guess breeding between different kinds of people that wasn't there before because um, all different kinds of people lived in these colonies you know we had the people from Africa the natives there and the people from Europe so these people naturally um, bred and created a whole new kind of person and a whole new social structure so mestizos um, they were third a lot of them you know, still peasants and things like that, but they were not nearly as far down the line as, say, your slaves. Um, they still had some rights um, and led a better life than the people just below them, the mulattoes. So mulattoes also are a mix of Europeans, but they are a mix of Europeans and Africans. So if you're a mix of European and Native American, you rank higher. You're higher in the social class structure than you are if you're a mix of European and African. But again, that same sort of like interbreeding um, and a new social, a new, a new social structure formed with these people in it. So the mulattoes were that mix of white people and the Africans that were there in the colonies. Um, below them, we have the Native Americans, um, ranked pretty low in society, were taken over. Um, forced to do work, forced to convert, things like that. And then finally we have the African slaves all the way at the bottom, um, treated horribly, forced to do coerced labor in these colonial societies. So there was definitely different treatment of these people depending on where they were from, what they were a mix of, um, the color of their skin, things like that. Um... Now for C, recruitment and use of bureaucratic elites as well as the development of military professionals became more common among rulers who wanted to maintain centralized control over their populations and resources. Um, an example of bureaucratic elites or military professionals are the Ottoman Devshirme. This is one part of the Ottoman Empire. I'm actually going to take this opportunity to go over the whole of the Ottoman Empire, just like I did before with the Qing Empire. Um, but listen out for when I talk about the Dev Shirme, because that is the example of this key concept that you need to know right here. Um, so the Ottomans are kind of now, it, now that area is modern day Turkey. Um, they were named after the ethnic groups, the Ottoman Turks. Um, it was basically a bridge between the East and the West with their empire. They settled in Anatolia, led by Osman, and they took Constantinople from the Byzantines, which ended them. Like They were on the decline, and then the Ottomans were on the up, um, 
and they were able to take over Constantinople and rename that Istanbul, which still exists today in Turkey. They controlled Persia, Syria, Egypt, Northern Africa, the Balkans, the Gates of Vienna, all things like that. We'll talk about their expansion a little bit later. Um, they used a Turkic pastoralist cavalry, but they also used gunpowder. Um, this is what they used to defeat Constantinople because they were able to break down their walls with cannons. Um, the Ottomans had guns, but they had a huge kickback, so you couldn't be riding on a horse. Um, in order to fight with these, they turned to slaves on foot to wield guns. How they did this? They took slaves from the Balkans, um, become somewhat like a tax. Basically, the Balkan people are controlled by the Ottomans, and their tax basically was to give children to the Ottomans to fight in the army. So, yeah, become somewhat like a tax. Christian families had to provide a male child to fight in the army. These were called the Janissaries. These were given to Ottoman families to raise, and at age six, they were taken to the Devshirme, which was a military training camp. They were indoctrined to view the sultan as their benefactor. Um, they prohibited marriage between the Janissaries because the Janissaries had to be completely loyal to the sultan. Eventually, the sultan begins to think, what if I use my army to help me govern? So, special Janissaries began to get trained in the Devshirme and government administration. Since the Janissaries became so effective, they started to take over the cavalry, which replaced the noble Turks that we, started, that we talked about right at the beginning. Um, so, they need more and more Janissaries, and they take away more and more land from the noble Turks who had fought before, to accommodate for the Janissaries. So now you have angry, skilled war veterans. Um, all of this gets worse because of the silver inflection in the Americas, which leads to severe inflation. And they couldn't just tax more because that was against the law. So no one moves any money. The cavalry now begin a rebellion, but the Janissary is very strong right now, and they side with the sultan, so they stifle the rebellion. Because the Janissaries are able to stifle the rebellion, the sultan finally lets the Janissaries have families and marry. Janissaries then become hereditary because dads turn, train their sons, so they save some money by getting rid of the Devshirme. So there was a severe inflation and then the uprising, um... And because of that, the Janissaries were able to have families. And because of the inflation, they got rid of the very efficient Devshirme system that trained the Janissaries to be really strong. The Janissaries then became hereditary um, because current Janissaries could just train their sons since they had families. Um, however, this did not work out very well as the Janissaries were not of the same caliber as they were when they were trained by the Devshirme. The Sultan's right-hand man in the Ottoman Empire is the Grand Vizier. This person was usually a Janissary. Um, like I said before, the Janissaries start becoming less loyal because they want their families to have better than them. Also, uh, tax farming begins, which we're going to talk about in a second. 
but basically a rise in taxes occurs. The people start revolting. Um, the Janissaries become less effective because they are not as strong without the dead Germany. And the Sultan begins to shrink away. So basically things were not going well for the Ottomans. They were going well for a really good time there. They had strong Janissaries. They had were expanding. It was going great. Um, now it's not going so well. And in the early 1700s, the Sultan was never seen. Europe is on the rise and the Ottomans are on the decline. Um, they're going to exist until, you know, they're going to keep existing for a while, but they're going to become known as the sick man of Europe. They're, they are not going to be nearly as strong as they once were or nearly as strong as the Europeans. Um, the Janissaries become obsessed with the Netherlands and the European luxury good, especially tulips. This showed your class. Um, the nobles had many... Um, tulips, they grew fields of tulips, and they had lavish parties where turtles had candles strapped to their backs, and so the lights would flicker through the tulip fields. That was like a big luxury good thing going on with the Ottomans. Um, conservative Ottomans did not like this. Um, they revolted again, and this one was actually very impactful because the Janissaries were no longer strong and no longer militarily trained. Um, this leads to the end of central government administration in the Ottoman Empire. It eventually leads to their decline, but again, we'll talk about that in a later period. Uh, decentralization, local elites take control over their territory. The Malmuks um, retook, take Egypt. However, they're still part of the Ottomans, but the Malmuks run everything. So, e like, this is a good example of the decentralization. Egypt is still part of the Ottoman Empire. However... The Ottomans, the central government, are not running Egypt. The Mamluks are running Egypt. Um, another place, Baghdad. Baghdad becomes independent from the Ottoman Empire. Um, the Janissaries were still in control in Istanbul, but much weaker. Um, another thing, the Ottomans were strictly Islamic. Um, they control control the Saud family um, took over and began to control Arabia, which they still do, um, as we know, in Saudi Arabia. But just revisiting that the Ottomans were Sunni Muslims, their neighbors, the Safavids, were Shia, and that led to a lot of conflict between them. So you really need to know that whole Dev Shermay system of the Ottomans as um, military professionals that were very that were once very effective for the Ottoman Empire. The second example for C is the Chinese examination system. Um, I guess this is bureaucratic elites. Um, we talked about this a little bit, but basically they continued the civil service exam in China, even though it was under the control of the Manchus. Um, this is another way that helped the Chinese accept them. However, it was very difficult now for actual Chinese people to enter the bureaucracy because the Qing scores on the civil service exam were curved. So the Qing, the Manchus, sorry, got um, the much higher scores and therefore got the much higher positions in the bureaucracy. And if the Chinese even made it at all, they had to get the much lower positions. However, it still held the illusion of, um, you know, everyone could participate if they passed the uh, 
Civil service exam and it held the illusion of still being Chinese since they still continued the practice of the civil service exam. Now we have key concept 4.3.1.D. Rulers use tribute collection and tax farming to generate revenue for territorial expansion. Um, so remember we still have the tributary system in China um, where that was a good way to generate revenue and recognize the supremacy of the Chinese emperor. Um, but we also have tax farming, which occurred in the Ottoman Empire. Basically, there was a lot of inflation because of silver inflation from the Americas, as well as there was a lot of inflation in order to pay the Janissaries. Basically, they took land from the cavalrymen to compensate, which left them very unhappy and armed. Um, tax farmers they did is they paid specific taxes such as customs and duties in advance in return for the privilege of collecting a greater amount from taxpayers so like these tax farmers that were collecting them from the government but basically had to say in what they could collect um, and they a lot of times created a greater amount than what was needed so they could make their own profits um, rural administration suffered because of this and the imperial government faced administrative burdens, relied heavily on these provincial governors and the wealthy who purchased lifelong tax collection rights. So if you had tax collection rights, you could collect the taxes for the government, but again, collect taxes for your own benefit, make some money yourself, and force the poor people who were already poor to pay more money. So this was a very corrupt system for generating revenue and eventually what is what part of led to decline of places that use this because it was not a good system. Now key concept 4.3.2 imperial expansion relied on the increased use of gunpowder cannons and armed trade to establish large empires in both hemispheres. Um, so especially gunpowder for our land-based empires um, the Ottomans the Safavids and the Mughals Basically, they were able to build powerful armies through the use of guns and cannons and really allowed them to greatly expand their empire because this was, gunpowder was a new thing that people had while it had been invented and used um, years before. People finally kind of got it under control with the use of cannons and were really able to take over other people because of this. I mean, this is why the mighty Byzantines fell is because the Ottomans were able to you know, attack them with the use of gunpowder. A. Um, Europeans established new trading post empires in Africa and Asia, which proved profitable for the rulers and merchants involved in new global trade networks. However, the impact of these empires were, was limited by the authority of local states, including the Ashanti and Mughal empires. So basically what this means is um, I talked about this before because I kind of lumped in everything together with the Europeans at the beginning. But basically, when the Portuguese, when the Dutch, um, even a little bit of the Spanish were over in the Indian Ocean trade and were establishing things called trading post empires, where basically it wasn't like the colonial governments, colonial peoples that they had over in the Americas. But they were still controlling a lot of the trading and took over a lot of ports, such as places like... Um, Gujarat, places like that, you know, they started to control what was coming out of there, 
and basically were able to make profit because of that on these trade networks. Um, however, while these trading post empires were super profitable, super big, um, the Europeans had a lot of power. Um, some of this was limited by local states, including the Mughals, who we're going to talk about in just a second. But basically, the Mughals, you know, they held a lot of power in South Asia, which was on the Indian Ocean trade. And um, because they were powerful themselves, they did not let um, the Europeans establish a ton of trading posts, empires where they were. And really, because they had a lot of authority, they were able to limit limit the European authority where they were because they already had all of the authority over the people there. So just keep that in mind that maybe the European trading post empires could have been even bigger, they could have made even more money if people like the Mughals hadn't already been there and already um, had the authority. Now we have B, land empires, including the Manchu, Mughal, Ottoman, and Russian expanded dramatically in size. Um, so I'm going to talk about Manchu and Ottoman expansion since we already talked in detail about both of those things. And then I'm going to talk more in detail about the Mughals and the Russians. So let's begin with early Ottoman expansion. So basically, they conquested into Eastern Europe and took Syria and Egypt from the Malmuks. Um, they expanded because of Osman, because... He had control of a strategic link between Europe and Asia. Um, they attacked Christian enemies in Greece and the Balkans and took over that. And that's where they started to get their Janissaries from, the Balkans. They defeated Serbia, ruled southeastern Europe and Anatolia. Um, they were able to use cannons to bring down Constantinople. So they took over the Byzantines. Um, Selim conquered Egypt and Syria, but we already said that. Um, Suleiman the Magnificent, he was one of the best Ottoman emperors. He conquered Belgrade, expelled St. John's Knights from Rhodes, and took siege to Vienna. So he was like the golden age of Ottoman greatness. Um, but basically, they took a lot like they expanded all the way like out to Syria um, down to Egypt into North Africa and all the way west took over into the um, took over the what the Byzantines and then all the way over to Vienna and then took over the Balkans all things like that so they they expanded a lot dramatically in size especially because of their use of cannons, gunpowder guns, things like that. The Manchus expanded a lot too, but basically they um, took over China, so acquired all of that land in China, and expanded China outward a little bit. Like, I can't remember, but I'm pretty sure like the Jurchens, like, they took over all of them. Um, basically they had a little conflict with Russia, but they... Um, made a treaty with them that fixed their border along the Amur River with, so they expanded all the way up towards Russia. And by, uh, by 1691, all of like Inner Mongolia, so parts of like Central Asia, was under Qing control. So yeah, they expanded and were able to take over a lot of China.
Now I want to talk about the Mughals. Um, more than just their expansion, I mean, they expanded dramatically in size as well in South Asia. But I want to talk a little bit more about them as well. And, sorry, they were a gunpowder empire as well, so they used, same as the Ottomans, um, cannons, things like that to conquer and take over. So they were in the India region. Um, Babur was the founder from Muslim descent. He defeated the last Delhi sultans. Remember, Delhi was the Muslim empire that was here before. Um, Akbar established a central administration there, um, extended almost to the southern tip of India, so that's how big it was. It's a, they were expanded dramatically in size. Mansops were land given for service. The economy of the Mughals thrived on cotton. India under Akbar was very prosperous and had very few threats, which was a good thing. Um, they traded at Surat with the Europeans, so that was how they got their influx of goods. And they're also pretty religiously tolerant. Like I said, they were um, Islamic leaders, but had a lot of Hindus that lived in the region that they conquered. So they had to be pretty religiously tolerant because a lot of people were not Islamic that they ruled over. Um, There's 70% of Muslim soldiers, and there were 15% Hindu Rajputs, which were a member from a Hindu warrior case, so that was kind of like how the military worked, even though the um, Hindus, again, were the majority here. Um, Akbar strived for social harmony, so he, he even married a Rajput. Um, he used both Hindu and Sharia law, which is another example of how they were religiously tolerant. Um, many religions came together here. There was a big mixture of traditions. But they eventually fell because of invasions and the central government fell apart. And that's, that's a reason that a lot of empires fall here. But yeah, just remember that they expanded dramatically and were religiously tolerant. Because remember, they were, not, they were Islamic people, Muslim people, that ruled over Hindus. But they, again, they even used Hindu law and Sharia law in court cases. So they, they did a pretty good job of like, integrating themselves into, in with the Hindus. Something I want to talk about with them is the Red Fort of Delhi. Um, Shah Jahan was credited with the construction of this, and it basically served as a massive fortress with high, thick, red sandstone walls, but also was built beautifully and served as a palace for the emperor and had several mosques there. So this was like a pretty good idea because it was like a military fortress, you know, no one could penetrate, but it was built beautifully. So the... Um, emperor could live there as well. Um, it had beautiful architecture examples would be the Delhi Gate, the Jiwan Ayam, the Machi Bhavan. Sorry, I know I'm pronouncing all of these wrong. Um, and these served important purposes um, in the Mughal Empire and also as an example of the Mughal architecture. So this is something that's pretty important to know for the Mughal Empire as well. Um, now I want to talk about the Russians. Um, so the Russian people in charge of Russia during this time were the Tsars. This was the title that was used since 1547. Um, it was earlier used for the Mongol rulers. It even means Caesar. Tsar, Caesar. Sort of like the old Roman Empire. Kind of in that way. Um... Russian church called Moscow the Third Rome. So they were they were a little bit modeled like after the Romans, but 
not not that much. Um, Russian expansion. Basically, they were blocked by Sweden, Poland, and Europe, and the Ottomans blocked south the southwest. A Muscovy forged on an empire that stretched from Eastern Europe across Northern Asia and into Northern America. So that's kind of where they expanded. Um, sometimes Russian claims to greatness were slightly exaggerated because in 1600 they were poor and landlocked. Um, the one route open to expansion, Siberia, was Russia's new world. So basically, it, it was, you know, Siberia's not like the greatest place ever. It doesn't have like the best resources ever. But that's where they were able to expand, kind of um, eastward um, into Siberia, and took took over parts of that, and they still control that today, and then even over into North America. Um, Siberia had little-known people and untapped resources. They also had prized soft furs that forced animals grew. So that was um, really their, like, good, I guess, that they had. Um, they were led by the Stroganovs. Um, destroyed the Khanate of Siberia in 1582. So this destroyed all the Russians and destroyed that, took over Siberia. They reached the Pacific, crossed over to Alaska, and began a military frontier zone there, and eventually used it as a penal colony. So that was kind of like where they expanded. Um, Russian society, sorry, I said... Long, but we're going to talk about all of Russia here because it's an important thing to talk about. Um, so, through expansion, incorporation of people of different languages, religion, and ethnicities occurred. Um, originally, Islam prevailed despite Christian missionaries in Russia. Um, this changed later as Russian are not still um, Muslim. Russians were farmers and hunters, but new people were herders. Caravan workers, hunters, and fishers. So they integrated a lot of new people because of the expansion. Cossacks lived on the steppes outside of farming villages. Um, they were di- diverse origins and beliefs, but were a close-knit group, fought well, and terrified villagers and authority. So these people terrified people in Russia. Temporarily, they were soldiers employed by the Stroganovs, um, founded every city in Siberia, because they took, remember, they took over Siberia. Um, Because of the Swedish-Polish occupation, Nikhil Romanov inaugurated a dynasty. Um, There was a conflict between the Slavic Russians and the Turkics. Um, Tsarist powers rose in Russia, and as that happened, as these Tsars rose, peasant freedoms fell. Um, Local military nobles with lands emerged that obliged peasants. Peasants could only change masters in a two-week period every year. Rising commercial agriculture raised the value of this, and a law was passed in 1649 that transformed the peasants into serfs so that they could not change masters and could not run away. So all the runners were forced to return to their masters. So remember the serfs and feudalism in Western Europe during the last period? Um, 
now during this period, Russia transformed their peasants into serfs and sort of did the same thing to keep up with commercial agriculture and things like that, made the serfs work. So not a great life for peasants and serfs in Russia during this period when the czars were in charge. Um, okay, now let's talk a little bit about Peter and Catherine the Great. Um, these were Russian leaders that were pretty different than the ones before us. They were the greatest of the Romanovs. They enthusiastically introduced Western languages and technologies to the Russian elite. They moved the capital from Moscow to St. Petersburg. They did not fight with Europe because they had, like, they knew Europe had a strong military and enormous wealth and, like, they knew it would be silly to try to wage a war with them. Um... Western European military built new weapons and techniques because um, they brought in foreign merchants into Moscow. Italians were influencing the church, the architecture there. But anyway, so Peter the Great, he really wanted Russia to become modernized. So he went undercover into Europe. Um, he busied himself in blacksmithing, Carpentry, shipbuilding, and acts of war. He learned from the Europeans um, in the West and were able to bring that back to Russia. He, he traveled across Europe to find out, to discover how they were becoming so powerful, how they're becoming so wealthy undercover. Like, he wanted to experience firsthand how to do the same in Russia. Um, he's paid, he paid special attention to ships and weapons, and he really wanted to reform and expand his empire. His modernized armies broke down Swedish control of the Baltic Sea after, because he modernized them and started making more direct contacts with Europe. This forced Europeans to recognize Russia as a major power. He built St. Petersburg on conquered land. Um, he pushed his Russian elites to begin to imitate the Europeans, so like, he modernized, and he even wanted them to feel more Western European. Um, he wanted them to adopt European fashions, shave their long beards, um, required people to bring their wives to social gatherings because that was what was happening in Europe. He directed his nobles to educate their children. He brought church under state control. He built factories and um, modernized his military brought in military supplies, produced military supplies, um, increased taxes, you know, more labor. So uh, this guy, like, single-handedly began to modernize Russia. Um, in period five, when we talk about, like, the quick modernization, um, Russia, of course, at the beginning was not up to speed with the Industrial Revolution in Europe, um, but eventually did get pretty modernized themselves. But Peter the Great, um, during this time, really tried to modernize them and really help them become a little bit more prosperous in period four. Um, Catherine the Great also ruled during this time. And by the end of her in 1796, Russia encompassed all of northern and northeastern Eurasia. So they were able to expand a ton under these people, expand a ton under Catherine the Great. So that was part of the reason they expanded dramatically in size. Um, before this, they were not able to do that. Like I said, 
it really only expanded into Siberia, but with these, Peter and Catherine modernization, they were able to expand quite a bit. Um, key concept 4.3.2.C, European states established new maritime empires in the Americas, including the Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, French, and British. Remember, I already talked about all five of those European states um, establishing empires in the Americas in different places. Remember the Portuguese in Brazil, um, the Spanish in South America, Central America, um, the British in North America, a little bit into Central America. Both Spanish and British had plantations there. The French in Canada and North America the Dutch over in the Indian Ocean, the Spanish a little bit, the Spanish took over Manila from the Portuguese. The Portuguese originally were there, but the Dutch took over Malacca from them. And then the Dutch really had a large impact over there as well. But remember that they established these empires in the Americas as well, because that is a big, important part of period four. And even new maritime empires, lots of sailing around there, lots of movement, remember all the, um, the Atlantic Circuit over there as well. So please, please just remember all that, and if you need to go back to the beginning of the video, please do, because that is a very important thing to understand, um, the initial colonization of the Americas by the Europeans. Key concept 4.3.3, competition over trade routes, state rivalries, and local resistance all provided significant challenges to state consolidation and expansion. Um, so an example of competition over trade routes is piracy in the Caribbean. So remember, the in the Americas, the Europeans were trying to trade. There's that three-pronged Atlantic circuit that I talked about. Um, pirates proved a big challenge to this because they were also trying to become wealthy, make some money, and competed with them for goods on these trade routes. Um, you know, Western Europeans did not like this in North America, and they began combating pirates, kind of fighting with them. Um, the pirates were sometimes successful and, you know, able to take goods, become wealthy themselves, um, but the Europeans were also successful and fighting them. But, so there was a competition um, in the trade routes in the Atlantic between the Europeans trying to sail and the North Americans as well as with the pirates. Um, illustrate examples of state rivalries was the Thirty Years War. Um, this is sort of a byproduct of the Catholic Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. But remember in Europe, um, this was a huge split. Um, some places were Catholic, Italy, um, Spain continued to be Catholic, and uh, the Germans, the British, um, they took place in the Protestant Reformation, Reformation and kind of made their own branches of Christianity. There's even the Church of England. Um, so basically, this was a like religious conflict fought in Europe, um, lasted 30 years. And is a battle among the Catholic and Protestant states that formed the Holy Roman, Holy Roman Empire. So it's basically because of the differences in beliefs, um, they began to rival each other, and the Thirty Years' War broke out because of that. Um, listed here is also the Ottoman-Safavid conflict, but I have talked about that huge conflict between them because 
Ottomans were Sunni Muslims, Safavids were Shia Muslims. Um, finally, illustrative examples of local resistance. We still have peasant uprisings here. When peasants were not happy with their situation, a lot of times they would stage uprisings. And this provided challenges to consolidation and expansion. Um, examples, you know, peasants in China were sometimes not very happy with the Manchu rule and how they were not allowed any as many rights anymore. I'm sure the peasants in Russia that were converted to serfs um, were not very happy about that. I'm sure there were some peasant uprisings there as well. And uprisings just always provide challenges um, to states trying to consolidate their power and just basically run the state because you have internal problems um, that creates just a lot of problems and you really can't conquer anything because you're dealing with your own people before you can even do that. So that, that is a big challenge, local resistances. Okay, and that is the end of the period four podcast. We are moving right along. All we have is period five, period six left. Um, those have a lot of information to go over, but we're going to do that next time. So next time you will be hearing about period five. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you learned a lot about what happened during period four. See you next time. Thank you.